Devin, I got a question for you. All right. What's that? What is the most pain that you've ever experienced? Well, I did just give birth to two children and um, I did use a epidural, but before the epidural, very painful. And when the baby's actually coming out, still also very painful. And then all the recovery around that. So basically the entire child birthing process is exceptionally painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've uh, never experienced childbirth, but I've Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. seen it three times and I would, that's what I assumed that you would say, that that's the most painful experience. Outside of childbirth, childbirth, what's the most painful experience you've ever had? Okay. Well, I don't know if this is like literally the most painful, but it's the one that comes to mind because I think it's kind of funny and we're going to need some funny to start this episode because it is not a funny episode. Um, (laughs) I don't think I've said this on the podcast before. Me and my sister and my mother all have the same tattoo. And it's like a pretty sizable, I guess like maybe six, seven inches. Um, And they had had tattoos already before we all decided to get this matching tattoo. And so they kind of, they went first and they seemed fine. Like they were talking, they're like, oh yeah, that kind of hurts, but they were fine. And I have to tell you, this was like up to that point just the most painful experience. You know, I'm like in my early 20s. I was just teeth gritted, like could not, they were trying to talk to me. I was like, leave me alone. Don't make me talk. I, it was so, so painful, which apparently means that I have a very low tolerance for pain because they were, we all got the exact same tattoo in the exact same place and they were perfectly fine. And I was just beside myself. So really low tolerance. Yeah, for pain. So <laughs> Yeah, so maybe you're just kind of a wuss. Oh, I'm a total wuss. Absolutely. You got a good pain experience? Well, the most painful thing that I can remember is when my kids, they were talking to somebody and somebody asked when I was born and they said the late 1900s. (laughs) So that was the most pain. That's the most pain. Yeah. My students now write that in the late 1900s and you're like, oh no. What a terrible way to, to talk about that. Yeah. The case that we're going to talk about today with um, with our guest, it centers on pain. And specifically, when does pain become intolerable? And not just like, I'm, I'm really, really uh, experiencing a lot of pain. This is so painful. Ouch. But pain so significant and prolonged that you would actually prefer to be dead rather than to experience the pain. Yeah, which is a, a pain I've never experienced. Right. And I can't even imagine. It really is hard to wrap your head around. It's, it's hard to imagine what that experience would be like, that you're in so much physical pain that continuing to live is unacceptable to you. So, But that's the case. Again, continuing in this, uh, this series of complicated, difficult, emotionally wrought cases um, in our series on, on clinical ethics cases that continue to haunt. So here we go. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she 
is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the baler bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, where we are continuing our series of looking at difficult, complicated, heart-wrenching clinical ethics consultation cases. Today, our guest is uh, Dr. Tim Leahy, who is an infectious disease doctor, but also the director of clinical ethics at the University of Vermont Medical School. So welcome, Tim. Good to see you. So what case have you brought for us today? So I wanted to um, bring forward a case that uh, had me and a bunch of people uh, involved in it, sort of um, unable to stop thinking about it on the drive home. It was it was something that stuck with us for a good couple of years um, as it played out. Um, but so it, it starts when uh, a, a 20-year-old woman ends up developing pain in her eyes, both eyes, that's quite severe after taking a medicine for acne. And uh, it turns out that this medicine is is known to make people have dry eyes sometimes. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable if your eyes stick a little bit. Uh, but, but, but this woman is reporting something quite different. It's just really sort of ongoing severe pain in the eyes. And she came to my attention because despite many efforts to get palliation for the pain, nothing was really helping. And, and she was just enduring months and months of severe pain in the eyes. And so she asked her primary care physician, if she could meet with a palliative care physician to discuss the end of her life. And uh, this, you know, woman in her 20s was otherwise perfectly healthy, uh, but announced to the palliative care uh, physician that she was interested in, in physician aid and dying, interested in palliative medicines uh, to help her die, um, and generally was sort of expressing the sentiment of life is not worth living if I have to live it like this. And so help me help me deal with the end of my life. And as you can imagine, the palliative care cl clinician was was alarmed by this and uh, hadn't experienced something of that nature in an otherwise healthy 20-year-old and so reached out for support. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. So I think people can't see this, but Tyler and I both looked quite alarmed. The pain in her eyes and she wants to die. Oh my goodness, like is there... You know, my mind immediately goes to, is there a psych issue? Is there something else going on? And is this, is this pain linked to this medication? Has she stopped the medication? Is, is there not another way to relieve pain? This seems like such an extreme request. My guess is that even in a state where physician aid in dying is legal, this is not the population that you're used to getting this request from. So I'm immediately alarmed and concerned. And I think that, you know, leads to one of the bigger challenges here, which is mystery. You know, it turns out that uh, this patient gives a very compelling and consistent description of severe ocular pain of a, of a uh, neurological origin, that there's some nerve injury. And that there's some, you know, according to neurologists who became involved in the case, there's some, you know, sort of physiological plausibility to this. But this isn't a complication that's known uh, from the medicine the patient received, and uh, and and so there there is sort of um, uh, 
it's difficult, you know, sort of nosologically just to sort of say this is the, the, the diagnostic category that this person is in. And yet, you know, we know that, that people can experience really severe neurological pain after an injury and, and nerves can uh, uh, cause pain in the eye. And so it was, you know, certainly a believable um, symptom that she was reporting. You asked about uh, associated psychiatric disease, you know, whenever a young person indicates a desire for their life to end, I think it's right to ask if that's a sort of a complicated version of suicidality. And the patient was really quite forthcoming about the fact that she had struggled with depression and anxiety in the past, and and that, in fact, tolerating severe pain day in and day out certainly wasn't great for her mood, um, but she was viewing this as entirely distinct from that, um, you know, that, that, that she was uh, articulating the belief that she was suffering as a result of the pain, and then secondarily having um, you know, a uh, uh, problem keeping her, you know, mood as happy as she would like it. Uh, but she didn't experience the desire to die as a result of her blue mood. She really was sort of saying, you just have to help me get the suffering wrong. And if you could take my pain away, well, great. I'd be, I'd much prefer that, but nobody's been able to promise me that. So I'm just logically thinking about the next step. Wow. That's, I, I'm trying to imagine, um, like the worst pain that I've ever experienced. And if, if it were persistent, right, if it wasn't, if, if it wasn't going to go away and there's no expectation of it going away, I, I, I think I could get there, right? I could get to the point where I was like, this pain is unbearable. It's, it's not worth the experience of, of that pain. And I think maybe the, the, the mystery of it, not being able to have a diagnosis is, really compounding this in, in important ways. Yeah, certainly, you know, if we were talking about somebody who has a known cause of severe pain, you know, most easily at the end of life, you know, we would sort of have no difficulty dusting off the principle of secondary effect and just say, hey, you know, do what it takes to palliate it. And if that risks, you know, cessation of breathing, then, you know, hey, at least we ended the suffering. Um, here we have both um, a, a young person with an otherwise excellent prognosis with, with, you know, as far as we can tell, a completely honest report of horrible pain, but we don't have, you know, the, a, a history with thousands of other people who have been in the same box who, uh, from whom to learn. And so, so we're sort of uh, seeing this first case, but of course, somebody has to prevent, present first with that condition. And, and, and as far as we could tell, that's what this was. Definitely a piece of this story had to do with looking at inadequately addressed either medical or psychiatric illness. In the medical case, we wanted to make sure that there no stone was uh, unturned in, in regards to just lessening her suffering. You know, was there some specialist to whom um, a patient had not been referred that we could ask her to be referred or even require her to visit with so that we could just reduce the pain and, and thereby remove the impetus for these requests. Uh, also, we wanted to make sure that this wasn't sort of a coded indication of suicidality. Wow. So set the stage for us a little bit. What is the state of the law in Vermont regarding medical aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide? Yeah, so um, it turns out that Vermont is um, uh, one of, I think, uh, 10 states uh, plus DC where um, physician aid in dying is legal. 
And that made it so that the palliative care clinician who is uh, receiving this request felt ambivalent. On one hand, um, you know, they were familiar with physician aid and dying, hadn't themselves ushered somebody through the process, but was very comfortable with eligibility criteria and referral to colleagues who did and, and so felt confident being able at an intellectual level to counsel this person about, about the, um, that, that sort of experience. And, uh, and so legally, if the, if the patient were to meet the eligibility criteria set out in, in our law, which is called Act 39, then, you know, the process could move pretty smoothly. Uh, on the other hand, um, the clinician, I think, was one noting that there was a, a problem uh, with the patient's eligibility um, for physician aid and dying, that there was a, a particular unmet uh, uh, criterion, and also, um, you know, sort of feeling worries about under-addressed drivers of this request, um, you know, as, as, as uh, you know, people who engage in physician aid and dying will tell you that sometimes that's a, a request that, that is um, really sort of um, a, a way of uh, indicating desperation. You know, that person may not have sufficient um, palliation of dyspnea or pain. And if, if you just deal with some symptom control, their interest in that process just evaporates. And so it can be a marker of inadequate uh, treatment. Um, and, and so uh, she viewed receipt of that kind of request as, as a first and foremost, uh, you know, sort of a mandate to address those symptoms. And yet um, getting to know this patient and seeing the work of other clinicians really wasn't seeing great avenues for that. Um, but wanted to make sure that she had satisfied the duty to do everything possible in that regard. I guess my, my, one of my first questions or one of my other questions is about the diagnosis itself. I thought that there had to be a requirement of a terminal diagnosis. Was that the case? Is that the case in Vermont? And was that the case for this woman? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the state laws where physician aid and dying are legal are really quite similar to each other, and they all include a requirement for a terminal diagnosis. And that was the eligibility criterion the palliative care uh, physician highlighted first. She said, you know, I really couldn't legally go through with this, even if I wanted to, which, you know, she really didn't. Uh, uh, because although this sounds like an agonizing process, um, there's there's not a terminal diagnosis. You know, I can imagine a scenario in which somebody has uh, an unclear diagnosis, and yet we still think that they're terminal. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, for instance, uh, cases in which people can have uh, neurological conditions that, that rob them of the ability to breathe on their own, and so it lands them in, um, you know, on a mechanical ventilator with presumptive, you know, sort of autoimmune attack on their nerves leading to paralysis. And, and so you can, you can, with a severe version of that, get to what clinicians would confidently say is a, is a terminal diagnosis without even really understanding where it came from or why. Um, but this seemed quite different. This was somebody who otherwise could stand up and walk around and was expected to live for decades, um, but just had pain. And how do you, uh, for those listeners who aren't as aware of what constitutes terminal, I mean, in Texas, we have a very specific sort of law about, you know, how you decide somebody's terminal or not, which is usually six months with or without treatment. Um, 
is that how you're defining it in Vermont or is there some other way to think about what terminal means? Yeah, very similar uh, criteria are used uh, here. It's not, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of wiggle room within that, uh, because anytime we ask a physician to look into the future prognostically, you know, they're sort of making their best guess, uh, knowing full well that uh, physician prognostication is not fully accurate. Um, but at least there is that sense of, um, you know, a, a way to get at this is there's this thing called the surprise question in palliative care meant to trigger access to end-of-life care where you just say would you be surprised if that patient were to uh, die in the coming year or, or in the coming six months whatever term you pick um and and in this case the answer is absolutely we would be absolutely surprised if this person were to die in the next six months and so i don't think any reasonable person would would hear this story and 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 confidently assert that the patient were terminal you know, the, the the first piece of advice that I gave to the palliative care physician was unsurprising to her, and I think more in her comfort zone, you know, is, is this patient's really not a candidate for that. The patient said that, I mean, the, the palliative care physician said that the patient had wanted to confirm that, but herself had done a lot of Googling and had a sense of what was legal and not in Vermont. And so also was asking questions about other kinds of end-of-life practices. Um, she was asking, for instance, about voluntarily stopping eating and drinking and whether the palliative care clinician could support her through that. And so unfortunately, um, there's a version of this where we could just sort of say, yeah, not eligible for PAD, that's the end. But the, the, the patient had a, another chapter in the conversation in mind. And so, as, you know, and, and so as you you guys know voluntarily stopping eating and drinking is a way that sometimes people at the end of life will hasten death when it's uh, has unacceptable quality of life and isn't imminent already. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and it uh, is sort of handled differently than physician aid and dying, which is really more well, legislatively overseen. So I'm equally nervous about Z-SED, the, the voluntary stopping of eating and drinking um, in part because you would have to, I imagine you'd have to follow through on that. So at some point she'd become so weak that she couldn't um, make decisions anymore. And typically at that point, we would have to then feed her another way, but she's telling us she wouldn't want that. So can we imagine her allowing her to do this to the point of death? I, I, I would think that'd be very discomforting as a clinician caring for her. Yes, this is the the sort of the stake, the palliative care physician felt that she was wriggling on is that on one hand, she wanted to be an informative patient advocate. And so if the patient said, you know, can I undergo uh, physician aid in dying? She wanted to just say, hey, here's why you can't. Uh, or similarly, if somebody says, you know, what is uh, VSED or how do you treat hypercholesterolemia? You know, most physicians will say, well, sure, I'll educate you about this. And yet she had really gave concerns about the possibility of an otherwise healthy 20-year-old person in her own life voluntarily in any way, including that one. Um, and so it, it, one of her most proximate questions is, how much can I speak with this person about that topic? You know, I don't want to use deception to hide something that she already knows about on from Google and yet I don't want to cross a line where I'm abetting something that I don't approve of. So maybe maybe let's back up for a second. When when the patient was asking for aid in dying, 
what what does that look like in Vermont or what would that what would that look like is that medication is it something else yeah so let's say somebody is uh, actually legally a candidate for um, uh, physician aid in dying you know they would have to be a Vermont resident they would have to have a terminal diagnosis as we discuss they'd have to be able to self-administer the uh, medicines have a willing physician who with whom they have a valid clinical relationship um, they also need to be um, assessed for the presence of either un insufficiently palliated ongoing symptoms uh, or unredressed suicidality um, they also need to make a request verbally formally to the willing physician and then follow that up after a couple of weeks delay uh, with a written request. So they need to indicate that it's a clear and consistent mm -hmm. um, process after which the physician would, could legally write a prescription. Then the patient would need to identify a pharmacy that is willing to dispense the prescription. And then the patient will be in possession of the of that prescription of medicines. Typically it's a cocktail of three or four medicines there are different different ways that this can be done and and actually what people use is you know subject to things like availability of a given drug in the market uh, but typically many patients will hold on to the prescription that has been dispensed for months enjoying the life that they have left of them trying to get support for any symptoms that need palliation and in in a substantial minority of cases, ultimately never uh, using the prescription. But uh, a bit more than half of, uh, of of all people who have actually been dispensed a medical aid and dying prescription uh, will go forward. Um, and uh, a lot of times, the involved clinicians will invite them to consider the setting. You know, do you want your family with you, or do you want to arrange a farewell conversation with people? Do you have somebody you need to apologize to, or Make sure they know that you love them or or a you know a thing that you want to you know something on your bucket list that you needed to do after which typically people will um, self-administer the prescription with family members there but sometimes people will elect to do it uh, alone and uh, and then they'll arrange for some way of uh, notification of death uh, to be made to uh, the police or other authorities so they may for instance time an email that goes to a loved one or um, send a letter um, to the police or something like that, just so that um, mm. there is notification that happens uh, afterward. And so, and so this young woman was, was interested in that. And then the palliative care doc said, well, wait a second, we're not, we're not quite sure the criteria are met. And then, so, so tell us what V said is, so voluntary stopping eating and drinking. And what, what does that look like? Most typically, the practice of VSAD occurs when somebody is already quite debilitated from a chronic and also, you know, perhaps not terminal, but nearing the end of life uh, condition. Uh, and in that setting, the, the patient may decide that quality of life is inadequate and they have decided not only that they might decide to, you know, sort of comfort, comfort, emphasize comfort and dignity over, you know, curative treatments or treatments aimed at uh, lengthening life, but it, but but they'll go even beyond just emphasizing uh, comfort and dignity and instead decide to hasten their own death by stopping eating and drinking. In somebody who is already elderly, 
frail, debilitated, has low muscle volume from the ravages of whatever chronic illness they've been dealing with that brought them to that place, um, if they're able to resist that powerful human desire to take in food and drink, which particularly in the first weeks can be um, extremely strong and not something everybody can overcome, they will start to move into end organ dysfunction. You know, they may, um, for instance, start to develop renal failure just because they haven't had enough fluids taken into their body to nourish the kidneys and ultimately will lapse into uh, somnolence and, uh, and a coma. How long this takes is really quite variable. You know, um, you know when, when uh, Irish hunger strikers uh, uh, would starve themselves uh, back in the 70s, it would take several weeks. A frail older person with terminal illness, it might take a couple of weeks. And typically through this, uh, clinicians may be involved particularly as they sort of lapse into a coma just to provide what essentially becomes hospice services. But the process begins under the patient's power. They elect on their own in the privacy of their own home to stop eating or drinking, not involving anybody else in the process. That, that seems like an extraordinary exercise of personal will, right? It's particularly when, when they are have other things going on. So are there, are there medications that, that they can take that help them uh, kind of overcome this, you know, this hunger pains and thirst? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and uh, I, I'd say different clinicians feel differently comfortable palliating the discomfort of voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, um, just like different uh, physicians are, are, are willing or unwilling to participate in a physician aid in dying. Those that do feel comfortable will say, you know, hey, if this person is already dying and they've just elected to stop, um, you know, taking life-sustaining nutrition in, I don't want them to hurt along the way. And so they can deal with just generic pain like you would with any, any pain medicine. There, you know, there are actually are medicines that can make you uh, hungrier um, and more likely to eat that, that, you know, have been developed to try to help people regain weight after wasting from, say, a cancer illness, there aren't great options to sort of make somebody just not feel hungry. Um, but occasionally people will try things like giving antiemetics to help with nausea that can occasionally uh, come with it. Um, but, but typically it's more about um, reactive responses to whatever symptom the patient reports, such as uh, muscle cramps, with the understanding that, that in order for the patient to follow through with this act of, of self-determination, they're probably gonna have to endure some of those, those symptoms, the body telling them very powerfully that that's gonna kill you and don't do it. And with a patient like this, I mean, it very much feels like aid in dying. It doesn't feel substantially different to me if you know what you're doing is watching them and their own lives and aiding them in the process of that. I can imagine a clinician feeling like this is very much like aid in dying. In fact, actually, it might be even more intimate because you're watching it happen, whereas a lot of people would take those medications and go home and die. You're sort of palliating symptoms, watching this person die right in front of you. That's got to be difficult. Yeah, it's that's right. There's, there's an interesting similarity and contrast. So um, physician aid in dying involves the intentional commission of an act. You know, you're prescribing a medicine intended to end life. 
and the, the physician does not have that role in, in BSED. But you're right, um, by contrast, the physician typically writes that prescription and then you know may talk with the person again or may not, that, that the ball is in the patient's court from there on forward. Whereas with voluntarily uh, stopping eating and drinking, the patient may actually have uh, scheduled appointments with the, the physician to request palliation going forward. And so the physician is, is witness to the patient's act um, potentially more in the future. And, and it's also more of a long-term act as opposed to one day the patient decides to take some pills. It's, it's over weeks they may um, stop eating and, and you, you'd see it. And um, the, the unfortunate answer was that there were some medical options that we could explore, some, some possible avenues for treatment that that the patient had an entirely explore that, uh, that that became kind of the next chapter in our conversation. Um, but really there weren't a lot of psychiatric avenues. The psychiatrists agreed that the patient had capacity and uh, felt that she was fully engaging with all possible psychiatric treatments and was not actively suicidal. That really was just expressing a, a perhaps a strongly willed and idiosyncratic, but rational response to horrible suffering. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about this case, and it's, it, you know, it sounds really challenging because of the age and the otherwise healthiness of the patient. But just looking at the facts of it, the, the fact that somebody is in uncontrollable pain, um, no hope, no explanation for the pain, no ability to kind of move, even envision a situation where you're not in pain, that seems like a terrible set of circumstances to live in. Particularly, I think this, and this probably exacerbates the, the, the tension maybe, is that she may be looking at 40, 60 years of life ahead of her. And if all she can envision is pain, this unremitting pain, um, that does sound like a, a terrible quality of life. And so being able to understand exactly the origin or at least some sort of explanation of the pain uh, seems like it would be really helpful. But yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, you can imagine that just as as there might be legal criteria for a patient to have eligibility for physician aid in dying, um, that, that may not be perfectly precise, but you'd want to at least, you know, sort of check the box adequately, like, uh, like we, as our discussion about the, the definition of terminal uh, spoke to. Um, there may also be, um, you know, sort of professional expectations of any involved clinician here to discharge the, the standard of care. And, and if you have a young person who has an incompletely understood condition that's causing great suffering, uh, you want to sort of feel like, yeah, I satisfied the duty to do everything possible for this person. And that we didn't, you know, sort of willy nilly shift to a purely palliative mode and even a mode that, that might contribute to hastening death without fully grappling with, with uh, all the different ways to manage symptom control. So that's, you know, a, a second chapter in our conversation, you know, after sort of clarifying that, uh, that, you know, physician aid in dying was not an option and just characterizing what uh, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking was, um, I advise the palliative care physician to emphasize that third piece of, of, of making sure that we've satisfied the, the standard of care. So for instance, if this patient had 
an illness that had been refractory to local neurological and palliative care attempts to you know lessen the symptoms was there some national expert that we could engage and and say hey you know uh, please engage in this kind of care so that we can also see that you as the patients are doing everything possible to get symptom relief that doesn't involve uh, dying. Uh, ultimately, the patient was able to uh, go to a quaternary center um, of international renown in a different uh, town and meet with a, um, a clinician who sort of had a similar impression, had not seen this before, had not uh, uh, heard of it in the literature, did try some additional palliative maneuvers, none of which really particularly helped. Hmm. So uh, there was sort of an effort to try to uh, deal both with psychiatric evaluation and, and help, which kind of yielded the sense that the psychiatrist really didn't think that this was primarily psychiatric in nature and subspecialty consultation for palliation, which sadly didn't uh, help at all. I mean, that, yeah, that's so horrible. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Gosh. I mean, I actually, I think Oof. that the key, uh, that, that distress that I think we all naturally feel, for me, partly attaches to the decision-making. You know, sometimes when I'm evaluating the rightness or wrongness of, of some course of action, you know, I'm using my gut uh, to begin with. You know, I have an initial gut reaction to things. And then, and then as, you know, um, behavioral psychologists will tell us sometimes we we justify our decisions post hoc with logic. Um, I, I think as an ethicist, I, I believe many times I'm using logic to, to reach the decision, but but certainly there is that gut reaction. And here, I think a natural gut reaction is distress and, and uh, compassion for her and, and, and mystification that something like this would happen to an otherwise healthy person. And for me, I, I view that as good because it, it elicits compassion but I do think one natural uh, temptation that can uh, happen with ethically fraught questions that arise amid that sort of, um, you know, sort of a protean emotion is the desire to sort of be relieved of that anxiety as quickly as possible. You know, it, it might be, mm -hmm. it might relieve my anxiety to say, no, you just can't do that. That's just wrong, period. Next question, I'm out. And that might make me feel better because I don't have to engage this story anymore. And I leave it to the palliative care physician to just deal with it uh, without me. Um, but, I, but I wanted to make sure that I was um, sort of uh, doing as good of a job as I could, truly weighing uh, the pros and the cons of the different facets of this in a way that wasn't sort of like um, inappropriately self-soothing, you know, oversimplification as a way to relieve one's own anxiety. Tim, what, how long has this been going on for her just to sort of think about how long she's been suffering like this? At, at this point where you've already sent her to another facility, they say the same thing. How long has she been experiencing this ocular pain? The first time I heard about the story was about four or five months into the story. I then re-engaged after she saw the specialist. Um, and that was around, I think, seven or eight months into her, her story. We had some months uh, to continue talking about it. But, so this was sort of long-standing, uh, horrible pain. And, you know, and I think one thing I, we all had been hoping for was that just as mysteriously as the pain arose, might it mysteriously disappear? Mm -hmm. There certainly are patients who experience, you know, say painful neuropathy in their fingers or toes after getting chemotherapy. And, and you know, maybe they never recover 
perfect sensation in their in their fingers and toes. But you know, over time, away from chemotherapy, they can you know recover from the pain, and and maybe all they're experiencing is numbness, which maybe isn't so bad. And so we'd all hope that that this would happen um, to this patient, that it would just start to get better. Um, uh, uh, unfortunately, it did not. And so, and so this was after a medication that she took for acne. That's right. Is that what you said? That's right. It was a medication that's a standard medication to give for acne that sometimes can cause dry eyes and sometimes dry eyes can cause uh, usually episodic pain. You know, somebody's, uh, you know, eyelid might stick to their eye and then when it detaches, that really can hurt. It can cause a corneal abrasion, um, but, but not, uh, not typically, you know, long-standing bilateral eye pain. Um, uh, and this was uh, enduring pain, even though months previously the that medication had been stopped. And the theory on the part of the neurologist is that there had been some nerve damage that was much akin to the kind of nerve damage you get with uh, chemotherapy or other conditions was, was the source of the ongoing pain. Wow. So we're at a another turning point here. So what do we do next? So we've tried everything. We're ho- we just were hopeful that the pain would go away. It's not going away. She's, I assume, continuing to ask to end her life because of it. It's been eight months. What do you do? I mean, I'm, gosh, this is the point where Tyler and I are supposed to come up with really like creative and interesting ideas about what you would do next. I have no idea. What did you do next? I, I mean, I uh, I sympathize with that, with your feeling. I, I felt like I was... Um, uh, you know, doing my best to help out without a lot of arrows in my quiver. Um, I did have a good conversation with the palliative care physician about behaviors that I think could be sort of unambivalently in the camp of support for a patient who's suffering, education and sympathy, and then other other behaviors on her part that that would come closer to abetting um, the patient's decision to, to kill herself. And, and so I wasn't sure if I would put them in the, um, absolutely morally forbidden category, but they're certainly more fraught. So for instance, you know, if the, the patient was, con- did continue to ask questions about voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, um, and wanted to know, you know, sort of, uh, what, what that's going to be like, how long it would take, uh, you know, uh, had requested medicines to try to assist with symptomatic control. I said, you know, I, I think educating her about what to expect, what could be involved is is fine. You know, she could probably get information on the internet and just making sure that she has accurate information is, is I think, sort of a, a, an area of moral clarity. On the other hand, I think if you gave the patient a medicine that made it easier for her to tolerate starvation and thus easier to end her own life, then I think you are um, arguably helping somebody end their life despite the absence of a terminal illness. And, and sure, it's, it's, it's less uh, impeachable than, say, aiding somebody who is suicidal in ending their life. But, but I don't think it's quite as much of an area of moral clarity as just education might be. Um, so we talked about making boundaries with the patient. You know, I can help you in this way. Uh, but in this way, uh, you know, if uh, the the physician felt convinced of that and sort of decided that she wasn't comfortable participating in that sort of care. Mm-hmm. Um, we also talked about uh, talking with the patient's family about this. So a common practice 
and this is actually sort of adopted from the practice of physicians who do participate in, in medical aid and dying, um, a common insistence on their part is that the, the patient sort of involve the family to the proper degree. And the reason for this is that, is that there is a track record of patients who have decided on their own without consulting with or notifying family that they're going to participate in physician aid and dying. And then by chance, maybe a family member shows up midway through ingestion of the lethal medicines, understandably is you know freaked out by this and calls for help right at the time that the patient does not want it. And then the patient ends up getting coded in the hospital, even though they, oh, shoot, here's the DNR. Oh, no, here's the note where they, she said, you know, so avoiding, you know, sort of communicational catastrophes like that seem like also an area of moral clarity. And I think also an opportunity to get the perspective of, of uh, the family, not as relayed from the patient, but um, directly. So we also said, you know, why don't we arrange a meeting between the palliative care physician, me, and the patient, and that had occurred before, and the family to discuss the patient's increasingly um, passionate sense that she was going to go through with this. Quite harrowing. Um, we, uh, the, the poor parents were, uh, you know, if we were distressed by this, you can imagine what they might have felt. Um, but also, I think similarly, they felt um, they understood that they had seen their daughter suffer, uh, and they, they believe truly suffer for months and months, and they wanted that to end as well. And I think like us, they were feeling kind of helpless. They knew that their daughter was increasingly uh, insistent on this course of action. And the father at one point said, you know, we think that she's going to kill herself one way or another. The question that we're starting to wrestle with, since we don't think we can actually feasibly stop a mobile, strong person from doing this if she's really uh, determined, uh, we're wondering how much she experiences suffering as a result of that act. They too were feeling kind of culpable uh, being adjacent to this as well, just like we were feeling some moral distress of sort of being involved in this situation and kind of wishing it would just go away. I think they were wishing they could get out of this nightmare. Wow. We asked them if we they felt like she, that their daughter was depressed and they kind of reiterated the same impression that the patient put forward and the psychiatrist had ratified that they thought that she had been pretty happy before this pain came up and that she was reacting like somebody who was suffering, but not as not in the same way that she had been acting previously during episodes of depression. So so, <laughs> so, so, we're, so it, yeah, now, so what? now what? So it sounds so the palliative care physician is saying you know, I'm not going to aid her in dying in the sense of I'm going to give her medications to make it easier for her to uh, participate in voluntary stopping eating and drinking, but I'm not going to withhold information about what that would look like for her because, you know, this is these are things that she could Google herself and better to hear it from me than to, you know, get some misinformation on the internet. So we're at this point now where that's sort of where the line's been drawn is and 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 it sounds like you are also comfortable with that decision that you know the ethics committee isn't saying no 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 it would be unethical to even educate her about this um or or we're we're not going to tell the palliative care physician you certainly have to aid her in this way or, th or else that would be unethical so you're respecting the palliative care physician's decision and so what's next well said. You know, initially we had been much more circumspect and sort of said, well, let's focus on that psychiatric evaluation. Let's make sure that 
all therapeutic uh, stones have been uh, turned over. Um, and that had really been the, the focus of our conversation. But as that played out, yes, we did sort of leave it in the space of, of, of ethical permissibility uh, to participate in an educational but, uh, but not facilitative way. We also helped the, the palliative care clinicians sort of work through who's, where the limits, both the physician and the patient autonomy were. Uh, and where the limits of their control were. So the the clinician was sort of feeling, well, this is my patient, and I have sort of a duty to try to safeguard their well-being. Um, and yeah, I, I think at another level, I understood that if an adult with autonomy decides to stop eating or drinking, the, the physician really doesn't have many powers to stop them unless there is a perception of suicidality. Um, certainly, if if the patient were suicidal, you know, then you could you know hospitalize the patient and and make sure that they uh, got nutrition. Um, but uh, but I think uh, everybody was coming to get to the difficult point that uh, this patient was not suicidal in the in the sense of uh, having uh, end stage depression. We essentially let the patient do what she was going to do, knowing that we didn't have the legal power to stop her. In Vermont, the law is uh, even stricter than it is in many states in the United States around the limits of the power of a physician to overturn patient autonomy. So if a, if a patient, even who lacks decision-making capacity, declines therapy, the, uh, the physician may not force them to have that treatment over objection, except in very, very tightly defined circumstances. So if the patient is suicidal uh, or if they have another life-threatening psychiatric uh, condition that needs urgent treatment, then they could step in. But if there isn't a threat to life and limb within the next 24 hours, they may be limited to just holding that person to try to protect them from doing something. And that's in the case of somebody who either is suicidal or lacks decision-making capacity. If they have decision-making capacity, there is no legal power. So we sort of talked about uh, you know, if you can't control that situation feasibly, uh, you should discharge your duty to educate and to encourage and to persuade, but but to not uh, try to accept responsibility for things you can't control. Palliative care physician visited with the patient some weeks in, and the patient was uh, ultimately did start to move forward with voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, and and uh, had been able to not uh, eat and drink, which is not always the case. And uh, this led to an interesting juncture in the story, which was at what point would it be acceptable to give palliative care if the patient starts to die as a result of her decision? You can imagine that when the patient is sort of physiologically well with the exception of the pain, it, it would be more morally fraught to facilitate not eating and drinking by giving a medicine, an anti-emetic or something, an anti-anxiety medicine is the other thing that the patient had asked for. Um, but that once a certain, you know, let's say if the patient stopped eating and drinking long enough so that she went into renal failure that was felt to be permanent, at that point, if the patient was definitely going to die, you could step in and, and help out. And so the, the question we sort of wrestled with was the middle ground, at what point how sure do you need to know that the patient is going to die? Uh, how sick does she have to be before you can step in and do palliation without that palliation essentially equating to facilitation of the said? Wow. 
Whoa, that that's a tough question, right? Oh, and and did the palliative care physicians feel comfortable drawing that line? This ended up being a, a place where I saw really quite different approaches. You know, I think some were very, um, very conservative in their approach and sort of said, you know, I need to get to a level of, of high confidence that this person is going to die. You know, and I, I want to see an indicator of organ function that seems quite severe where I'd be willing to spend because I want to steer clear of, of, of unwittingly facilitating somebody's self-destruction. Um, others sort of said, hey, look, you know, I palliate people who are dying all the time. And if this person sort of has events through several months, verbally, the desire to follow through with this, and then through weeks, harrowing weeks, decides not to eat and drink in a way that's, that's you know, um, more intolerable for an otherwise young, healthy person than it would be for a frail elderly person with a chronic disease, you know, gosh, that's good enough for me that I think you know, inevitability has occurred and so I'm willing to step in. That ended up being actually a little bit sort of coincidentally uh, pert because one of the more willing to engage clinicians ended up being on call the night that the patient uh, presented sort of somnolent and in renal failure. Hmm. Uh, this was uh, more than a month after she had decided to stop eating and drinking. So she had a, uh, to her pain, she added the suffering of not eating and drinking I should mention how this was done. Uh, when we were talking with her parents, we sort of, as clinicians, connected with the parents over the limits of our ability to stop her if she was determined. And, and over this question of culpability, they too are wrestling with, well, they wanted to help her in any way they could, but they didn't want to facilitate it either. And so we talked about how they could do that. At the time that the patient presented in renal failure, the parents had seen her go through a month of starvation. And as you can imagine, we're just at wit's end and, and well beyond it. Um, the lovely people, but just, you know, uh, carrying a burden of nearly equal size to that of the patient. Um, and the palliative care physician who was on call that night sort of said, you know what, I what I know I can do is help this person be comfortable. And so she's visibly suffering less. So you're, you know, the parents see the visible suffering less. I'm not going to do anything that I think is intended to accelerate death, but I am going to try to help take some pain away. Um, so she entered into hospice with, um, you know, sort of progressive renal failure that was expected only to get worse because the patient continued to refuse food and drink for as long as she was conscious. And ultimately about six weeks after the patient opted to stop eating or drinking um, with sort of subtle levels of, you know, sort of um, medicines for Sleep. She wasn't hurting at the end, so she essentially just uh, was saying goodbye to her family and then sleeping uh, was what happened at the end. Uh, she passed away. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Tim, that is a, I can yeah. see why that is a case that sticks with you. That's, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah, particularly, I mean, yeah, I, Devin's got small kids. I've got small kids. Like, just the idea of our children being in so much physical pain that the preferable outcome is six weeks of self-imposed starvation oh. and then oh. yeah i i hear you i have um i have uh, two kids one of whom is uh, in his 20s and and to imagine i i mean i uh, honestly my my brain looks away uh, from that imagination um, yeah and it does uh you know, it does ask you, I think it's such a profound and distressing story. It does ask you, you know, what would, what would, 
each of us do in that situation of confronting with confronted with the same situation and you know you know and i think i probably personally would strongly advise you know not terminal sedation but maybe deep sedation to try to make the pain tolerable but focusing on that and not not any effort to to meaning not not any effort that is meant to end life partly just to buy time i I think uh, just in case the condition resolved Um, but i understand that sometimes I've certainly seen uh, people under the care of palliative care services who have just horrible, painful conditions that no medicine can touch. And so I understand that uh, there were no promises there and that uh, this patient was sort of on a path that very few have to to tread. And much as it bothers me, I also don't want to judge anybody involved other than just to help them see what's murkier than other uh, areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as the ethicist working with this team and this family on this case, what are, what are your what are your takeaways like, from from the role of the, of the ethicist? What could you have done better or different or uh, anything at all? You know, for me, I think partly this has to do with uh, definitions of these different processes, you know, the difference between physician aid and dying and voluntarily stopping uh, eating and drinking and euthanasia. And I do think that that the details of those definitions and the the moral weight of either uh, uh, committing an act or or uh, or not or um, witnessing something as opposed to facilitating it, uh, it, it is something that needed to be weighed here. And so I think it was a service to the patient and the involved clinicians to help them sort of get better clarity about what their role was so that they could make these difficult moral decisions. Ultimately, I don't think that there was one clear consensus approach. You know, di- there were slight differences and different clinicians willingness to step in at the end there. I also think that beyond definitions, there was a there's a sort of an interesting societal question in here about duty to protect a vulnerable person. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was talking about, you know, the duty that a clinician would have if a patient said that they were suicidal and gonna kill themselves, you know, that 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 duty to step in and take over, to overturn that person's autonomy in order to save their life is a, a grave responsibility. And essentially, I think it has to come with some likelihood of being able to save that person's life. You, you know, uh, if, on the other hand, our intervention had a reasonable chance of making no headway with the patient's pain or with the desire to, to save life, you could imagine that one outcome of this might have been permanent protective institutionalization and extension of suffering. And I think, you know, kind of weighing up the, the pros and cons there, I think that might have been net harmful. So this sort of spoke to me to the idea that when society exerts its power over an individual, overturning their autonomy in order to reach a, a better good that that we do need to have sort of a, a standard uh, of sufficient benefit of that act. And that, that you know, uh, in the case of somebody who say, let's say is suicidal uh, in the setting of bipolar disease, there really are good tools. And, and there is a track record of psychiatrists being able to step in and relieve that person of their suicidality and return them to decades of meaningful life. And so, Yes, there's a benefit to uh, counterbalance against that patient's autonomy. 
here, I think atypically, we realized that in that balancing, there was an unusual lack of clear expected benefit. Wow. Well, Tim, thank you for that super interesting case. We've had a number of different cases uh, so far during this series that we're doing, and um, each one of them is kind of challenging and, and heart-wrenching for different reasons. But uh, this this is uh, another one in that, that line of, of, of cases. So thank you for the work that you do and for sharing the case. You bet. And I, I hope I haven't bummed you guys out too much. I, uh, I do take some solace in the fact that we did, uh, I think, maybe lessen the, the clinician's sufferings by helping them make clear decisions. And I guess the upside is that it's, it's, it's meaningful work. But you're right. I think maybe we all need to go stand in the sunshine and uh, uh, even out our mood so that uh, the, the weight of this doesn't uh, bear us down too much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm-hmm.